Let's pray. Father, we come expectedly, expectantly to your throne to receive from your hand the gift of your word, to receive by the power of your spirit that which is eternally powerful to save souls, to convict, to instruct, to exhort, and to give the power that we need. We believe that your word is powerful. We believe that your spirit is active. We believe that the intercession of Jesus is ever now, even now, for us that we might receive what you have for us. Help us, God. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So just to put a little bit of rest to your mind there, we're only covering four to nine today. Um, you're sitting there going, oh my goodness, what's going on here? Next week's the really fun one, uh, talking about all those people and what they're like. <clears throat> Today, like I said, we're going to look at 4 to 9 of Second Peter 2. Really hard to separate this passage out and figure out where to stop. And actually where we're stopping today has a comma uh, at the end of uh, verse 9. But we'll, we'll do all that math next week. Uh, so for today, we're going to start in verse 4. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. Semicolon in our ESV version. Well, so if you've got it in front of you there, you see that our passage today starts with that word for, right? We see this almost every Sunday. It seems like it's for or therefore which means that today's passage is tied directly to the prior passage. Um, this four is expanding on what was said before it. And what we looked at last week was discussing the impact and the dangers of false prophets in the past and false teachers who would come in the future. And as per usual, it's probably just best to read what we looked at last week and then move into what we're going to look at today. So last week was Second Peter 2 verses 1 to 3. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. That's the end of verse 3 there. So from that short passage, we see false servants of God. And again, false is the, the main word there. These false servants calling themselves servants of God, they bring in destructive heresies into the church. Now don't miss that. This is into the church setting. And they exploit God's people for sordid gain. But the passage concluded with these people's condemnation not being idle and their destruction not being asleep. And now today, four. These people will meet certain condemnation and be destroyed. And as we'll see, God's people will be delivered from them. Why? How? Four. And now Peter's going to expand on what this condemnation could be compared to and what it will look like through three past examples of God's wrath being poured out on angels during the worldwide flood and at Sodom and Gomorrah. And then through four if statements. So keep up with the ifs. We'll talk about that a lot today. So what Peter's doing is he's providing proof that God's judgment against ungodly people can be guaranteed because of what has happened in the past to ungodly people. And that that is going to show that God is not, has not, is not, will not ignore evil, but God sees the evil, the evil people, the evil deeds, and He consistently is pouring out wrath upon the evil people who do the evil deeds. And he will consistently do that. And he's doing, Peter's saying all this to help comfort his readers in the midst of just telling them that these evil workers would be working their evil in their time and their place. So Peter's saying, hey, false teachers are going to come in, but it's not a cause for hopelessness. I want to reassure you, Peter is saying, that God is superintending all of this. And He's able to deliver you in times of trial, in times of suffering, in times when it seems like the wicked are flourishing. 
So the condemnation and the destruction are sure. And that's good news. And we'll talk about that a lot today. And then to prove it, Peter's going to look at three examples. And the first example is about angels. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned. And if you remember, we talked about this some back in 1 Peter 3 and we'll reference that as well. And theories abound about these angels and this sin and what happened, what it means. And when we looked at it in 1 Peter 3, uh, that was verses 18 to 22, we kind of set forth, we, the corporate we, the fiduciary we, I uh, set forth in that passage where I have settled on the interpretation of that. Because it's, it's a little bit contentious. can be a little contentious. And if you weren't here for that, I'll go over quickly what was said there in an overview fashion. And if you were here and remember, it'll be good review anyway. And we used our passage today to help explain that passage at that time. So it makes sense to go over it again. So in the first Peter passage, which is verses 18 to 22 of 1 Peter 3, it says that Jesus, after his death, went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. And we came to the conclusion that those spirits may have been in prison due to the context in what we saw in Genesis 6, 1 to 4. Let me read that for you. And again, this is what we're saying in the context it was pointing to that the angels did that landed them in that prison. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His day shall be 120 years. And then verse 4, The Nephilim were in the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. So the main issue in that passage in Genesis 6 is that the sons of God, who from other passages we put together and concluded, were angels or fallen angels, demons. These angels, we'll call them angels because that's what the text calls them, had crossed a line leading to God, sending them directly to jail. Don't pass go, don't collect $200, go to jail. Um, Now let me just say, like I said a minute ago, there is a lot of conjecture and arguing back and forth as to whether or not these, quote, sons of God actually refer to demons or not. But I am convinced that the biblical evidence points to that, that these sons of God were angels. They were spirits. And whether you want to call them angels, fallen angels, demons, that's what it's pointing to, okay? That they actually refer to demons. I'm going to call them demons and angels, so just stay with me there. So Because I think the biblical evidence points to that. And what we referenced in Genesis... And what is said in 1 Peter and here in 2 Peter and also is echoed in Jude, there's definitely some spirits who were imprisoned before the final judgment held in chains till that time of judgment. And all of those passages, 1 Peter, 2 Peter, Jude, and the stuff in Genesis, all those passages point to some sexual issues and then point toward the flood and then Lot and Sodom and Gomorrah as well which we'll see again in verses 6 to 8. And I just put that little explanation in there to make sure we're not being dogmatic about something that is at least a little unsettled, but also want to reiterate why I've come down on where I've come down on it. Okay? So if you're of the mind that these angels weren't actually spirits that came into the sons of man and bore children, we're not going to divide over that. Okay? Not that important but I'm, I'm pretty firmly convinced that that is what's going on here. So, that being said, back to 2 Peter 2.4, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. So we're saying these angels are demons that took human women to be with them in ways that they should not have, ways that God had forbidden. <clears throat> and God did not spare these fallen angels when they sinned. He did not overlook it, Or just write it off as no big deal. And remember, we're looking at this in the context of God being faithful to judge sinners, including the false teachers who would be slithering into the congregations of Peter's time and ongoing. So God did not spare these angels, but cast them into hell. Interesting here. Not that it's very important, but the word for hell here 
is not the same as what is used to denote the final place of judgment for sinners. The final judgment place of sinners would be Gehenna in the Greek, but Peter uses the word Tartarosis, and that just means um, place of the underworld. Okay? So these fallen angels went not to final judgment, where they will go when all is said and done, but more like a holding cell, awaiting final judgment. And again, don't pass go, yada, yada, yada. And then Peter says that God committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until that judgment. They don't get to move around. They don't get a second chance. They don't get to make light of what they had done. God saw the sin and God passed judgment on them then and there. And they are to remain in chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. And that phrase, chains of gloomy darkness, is a way of showing that these sinning spirits are bound. They're restrained. They're not allowed to move around or affect things anymore. Some translations actually actually say it as dungeons, not chains. But dungeons and dragons is of the devil, so the ESV didn't use the word dungeons. Probably not why, but... Uh, But both words point to being held in a way to limit where they can go and what they can do. Where they can't go and what they can't do. And they are held there in that place by these chains until the final judgment. Now that points us to two things. They can't do anything until that judgment. That's the first thing. And secondly, that final judgment is coming. And that's important to note. So there's the if God did not spare angels when they sinned section. That's the first if. Verse 5 gives us our second if statement. If he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. Also semicolon in our ESV. Not in the original Greek. No punctuation. So the second if statement is focused on what? Noah and the flood of his day. In referring to God, Peter says, If he, God, did not spare the ancient world when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. And again, I'm going to say this and you're probably going to get sick of hearing me say it. But if we don't reiterate it, we might miss the point of all this. Remember Peter's point in all this. He's showing God's history of judging the unrighteous and delivering the righteous. You're probably going to get sick of hearing that phrase, but it's important. And here, the judgment of God is God passing judgment on the whole world and its unrighteousness through the worldwide flood. Going back to Genesis 6, we read in verses 5 to 7 and verses 11 to 12, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man with whom I created, whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. And then verses 11 to 12. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and the earth was filled with violence. Now hold on, this is bonus material here. Violence. Interesting to me that that's what the world was filled with. We don't think much about violence today. We watch it, we listen to it, not a big deal. Violence is not a big deal. Well, it was a big deal. Just tuck that away. Um, Back here, uh, earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. Now, it's important to remember that the flood was God judging the sin of man. Every intention of the thoughts of men's hearts was only evil continually, and all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. So what's God to do in that situation? Just sit and let it happen? God would not and could not just let this run wild and run loose and at the same time uphold His holiness. He couldn't do both. So God judged this corrupt world by bringing the flood to destroy all flesh, a worldwide flood that destroyed every living being on the earth. But we read this in Genesis 6, 8, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. So what we've got here is righteous in the midst of the unrighteous. Keep that in mind. In the midst of judgment of sin, God shows favor to one man and his family out of the whole earth, out of the whole world. And from this favor, God extending that favor, Noah found grace because God extended grace to him. 
God extends grace to Noah and his family and delivers them from the destruction that came through this flood. And again, see God's judgment on sin and God's deliverance for his people even in the midst of the harshest judgment. God did not spare the ancient world, but he did preserve Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others. There was grace in the midst of wrath. Noah is called a herald of righteousness. And we don't see anywhere in the biblical account in Genesis that Noah preached or reached out to the world around him while he was building the ark. But Jewish tradition taught that he did. Josephus, a a Jewish historian from the first century, says multiple times in his writings that Noah called on his generation to repent. But did anybody repent? No. So God preserved Noah and seven others, which is his wife, his three sons and their wives. He preserved these eight people from the destruction that came through the flood that destroyed all people, all living creatures, except these eight people and the animals that God had brought to the ark to keep them alive so that when everything was over, they could repopulate the earth. So the lesson is, according to Peter, God will judge evil and... In that judgment, he will preserve and save his people through it all. In the midst of this sin and judgment. And then Peter says it again in verses 6 to 8 with another example. If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, and if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Semicolon. I keep leaning into the microphone, it's not working. So here we have our third example and our third and fourth if statements. Okay, Peter continues to show God's persistence in judging evildoers by looking at Sodom and Gomorrah. If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. That's pretty clear, right? If by chance you don't know what Peter's referencing, in the time of Abraham... Father Abraham, who had many sons, actually had one son, but anyway, they turned into many sons. In that time, the Bible says that God looked at the evil going on in the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. I grew up thinking Sodom and Gomorrah was like a place. Sodom and Gomorrah. Sodom and Gomorrah. Sodom and Gomorrah, one M, two R's, I've learned through typing this many times this week. Okay? Um, During that time, God looked down on these two cities and he determined that he was going to literally... Wipe them off the face of the earth. Okay? And that's what's going to happen. How evil, how bad do things have to be? We saw through the worldwide flood, thoughts of their hearts was evil continually. Violence filled the land. Well, in these cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, things were going on that were so bad that God said, I'm going to wipe them off the face of the earth. The whole, the whole thing. And we'll see that in a second. Okay? So, Abraham... God went and told Abraham what he was about to do. And Abraham said, Let's, what if I find like 50 righteous people? God's like, I won't destroy you if you can find 50. Abraham's like, uh, what about 40? God's like, if you find 40, I won't destroy you. And he bargains down to 10. Abraham says, if I can find 10 righteous people in these two cities combined, will you not wipe them off the face of the earth? God said, if you can find 10 people who are righteous in the midst of these two, which God knew, I won't destroy it. Well, couldn't happen. Okay? God ended up destroying both cities because they could not find ten. God destroyed them, sparing only Lot, who is Abraham's nephew, and Lot's wife and two daughters, who were told to flee. Get out of here. And it says they went, the, the daughters went to their betrothed or their husbands and said, Hey, we got to get out of here. And they laughed at him and said, Ah, whatever. We ain't worried about it. So Lot, his wife, his two daughters, four people. That was the total count that made it out of Sodom and Gomorrah. And we know that Lot's wife didn't make it because she was leaving and God had said, don't look back. She looked back and she's turned into a pillar of salt. So she made it out, but she didn't make it away. Okay, so three people. Three people made it out. But the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their inhabitants were destroyed. Genesis 19, 23 to 25. The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar, which is a city away from Sodom and Gomorrah. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire 
from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. Now get that, sulfur and fire from heaven destroying everything, everybody, even what grew on the ground. Scorched earth policy. And Peter says back in 2 Peter 6 that this is an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. But in keeping with his thought pattern, Peter reminds his readers that in the midst of this total annihilation, Lot, a righteous man, was rescued. Lot, who Peter tells us was greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked people in Sodom and Gomorrah. And then in verse 8, Peter says, For as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Now listen, if you read everything there is to read about Lot, you see he ain't a perfect person. Okay? As a matter of fact, the Old Testament historical account does not do him any favors in what it records about him. You can look it up yourself if you want to. We're not going to cover it this morning. So he wasn't perfect, but he was what? Righteous. So was his righteousness based on his deeds? Thank God, no. Thank God for us that it's not based on our deeds, but it's based upon the same grace that God extended to Noah. The same grace that God extended to Abraham. The same grace, that same grace God extended to Lot and deemed him righteous. And therefore, he was rescued from the annihilation. And Lot was righteous in that he was tormented. He didn't like what he saw going on around him. It did disturb him. It distressed him. And he was righteous because God declared him righteous. And he had faith in that. But, and he's, he's put in contrast to the evil. Okay? Because of God's pronouncement over him as righteous, he is put in contrast to the evil, the sensuality and debauchery that was going on in Sodom and Gomorrah. He lived there, but he was distressed and tormented by what he saw going on there. And what was it that he saw? Sensual conduct of the wicked and lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Now we know from the account of the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah that the men of the city pounded on Lot's door the night before they were destroyed desiring to sexually accost the angels that Lot had taken into his house for shelter. Wow. We also know from Ezekiel 16, 49 and 50, Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and needy. They were haughty, and did an abomination before me, so I removed them when I saw it, God said. And I only bring that up because some of our liberal friends want to just take the Ezekiel passage and say that Sodom and Gomorrah's sin was not sexual in any way. They say it was a hospitality issue. Well, I'd say pounding on a door and asking to have sex with angels is a little bit more than just a hospitality issue. The Bible's verdict is they were sensual, It was lawless, they were arrogant, and they were not caring for the poor. All the above. And it had reached the point that God finally said enough after not being able to salvage even ten righteous people there. And so God leveled them down to dirt with fire and sulfur from heaven. Because God knows how to judge the wicked. And... God saved righteous Lot because God knows how to save the righteous. Even in the midst of unthinkable evil. And even when these righteous people aren't perfect themselves. And don't miss the statement that we skipped over in our movement through this passage. Making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. We haven't talked about that yet. Peter says that God condemned Sodom and Gomorrah to extinction making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. Don't forget the point of our text. Peter is comforting and encouraging these believers by showing the wicked being judged and the righteous being saved. And in this example of destruction of the wicked in Sodom and Gomorrah, Peter says that this particular event is an example of what's going to happen to the ungodly. 
Here's a line that speaks directly to Peter's audience. He's saying that all of this that happened long ago is relevant for their time, and so ours too, by the way, because those doing evil now will suffer a similar fate as all of those in the past, including what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah. These false prophets that had snuck in and the false teachers that will sneak in will be judged by God at the end of all things. And it will be ugly like it was in Sodom and Gomorrah, down to the dirt. Now, why would Peter say this? How is this encouraging to his readers and how is it to be encouraging to us? Because who wants to worship a God who's soft on judgment? What kind of holiness just turns a blind eye to evil? Who wants to suffer at the hands of exploiters and abusers and not have any hope of being saved from their evil both now and in eternity? When we see evil, we are rightly disgusted by it, hopefully. And if we're disgusted by that evil... There is joy in knowing that God is going to destroy that evil. Not just the people who did it, but the evil forces behind it as well. We don't wrestle with flesh and blood, right? We wrestle with angels and principalities and these things in in heavenly places. It's spiritual forces. Those forces are going to be destroyed as well. This is not just Hitler gets his, even though that's kind of comforting, truthfully, after his atrocities. But the forces that motivated Hitler, the things behind all of it, also will come to an end. And that's worth worshiping God for. Peter has been very frank and forthcoming in calling on his readers to suffer, both in this letter and in his first one. Well, now he's working to reassure them that this suffering doesn't just end with suffering. It ends with deliverance and salvation for the righteous and it ends with judgment and justice for those who have done the evil that the righteous are suffering through. And as sure as Sodom and Gomorrah were judged down to the vegetation in their sinful cities, so too will those those people and those forces who serve the evil one's purposes in causing suffering of the righteous. God will judge evil. Hallelujah. It's very good news unless you're in with the evil crowd. And Peter ends our passage today with a resounding reminder to wrap up all these thoughts in verse 9, even though it doesn't wrap it up because there's a lot that follows it that we'll cover hopefully next week when we hopefully have electricity. By the way, there's no power shortage here this morning. So Brother Jason's preaching good, y'all. Y'all didn't say it. Okay, good. I'm glad glad you didn't say it. So verse 9. I've been waiting this whole time to say that. I'm thinking, when it went off, I'm thinking, that's what I'm going to say. Verse 9, Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. That's an incredible verse. Now follow the flow of thought through our passage today. Okay, We're going to recap it. Remember that our passage started with a four. We had seen last week in verses 1 to 3 that the false prophets had arisen in the past and false teachers were going to come on on an ongoing basis through the future of the church. And these false teachers would be effective, unfortunately, with many following them, many of God's people following them. But these false teachers' sensuality and their exploitation and greed would only have surface success because their condemnation has been marked out from long ago and their destruction is not asleep, Peter said to end last week. Then Peter launched into some if statements after transitioning with the word for. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle and their destruction is not asleep for if. And then what followed were three examples and four if statements to show that the judgment of the wicked and the deliverance of the righteous was guaranteed as evidenced by God's actions in the past. If God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the day of judgment, if He did not spare the ancient world but preserved Noah, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes He condemned them to extinction, and if He rescued righteous Lot, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment." Peter's saying that since all of this was said, 
which was said in verses 4 to 8, since all of that is true and it really happened, these aren't fables, these aren't made up stories, they're not cleverly devised myths, Peter said a couple weeks ago. Since they are true and they really happened, they're historical facts, then God knows what He's doing. And we can know that for sure from His past actions. And since those reading Peter's letter are being persecuted and are being exploited and they may have concerns about when and how all this ends, Peter wants to reassure them that although these evils are going to continue, probably through all of church history, Jesus' parables in Matthew 13 say it's going to happen. Enemy is going to sow tares and those things are going to pop up and, and we're going to grow together. Don't uproot the tares because you'll, you'll harm the wheat, Jesus said. So leave them until the end of time when the angels will, will sort out the good and evil. So this evil is going to continue. So that sounds hopeless, right? But Peter's saying, no, it's not hopeless. Peter wants to reassure them that the end of all of this is good for them and bad for the wicked. They can trust God as they suffer knowing that God is handling all that is going on and is working it all together for their good and the judgment of the wicked. If, 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 and if, well, then the Lord knows. It's almost a nonsensical thing to say, but yeah, God knows what He's doing. But we do need reminded of that on a constant basis, don't we? Because we doubt, we wonder. How could God let this happen? And that's the cry of the unsaved, right? If there's a God and He's good, how could He let all this happen? So we need reminded that God does indeed know what's going on. He is aware of the evil. He is aware of the suffering. And He has promised that He will judge the wicked and preserve the righteous. From the beginning, from Genesis all the way through. God knows what He's doing. But we do need reminded of it. The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. Thank God. Praise God. That's a fine thing to see for these persecuted believers 2,000 years ago. And we need to hear it too. The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. It does not say the Lord knows how to keep the godly from trials. It says the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. It means while they, when they're in their trials, God knows how to help them best. And Peter had told the recipients of his first letter that trials and sufferings are part and partial to the Christian life. Paul would say to Timothy, anybody that desires to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Jesus said, if they hated me, they'll hate you. In this world, you will have trouble. But take heart because I've overcome the world. And in the midst of all this suffering, the Lord knows how to rescue his children from these trials and from this persecution. Do not be disheartened. Do not be hopeless. God knows how to rescue you from whatever trial you may be going through right now. Whatever comes in the future, God is able to rescue you from that trial. God knows how to rescue you from whatever trial you have gone through, are going through, or will go through. He knows how. You don't have to know how to work your way through it. You don't have to have a roadmap that shows how long this is going to last and what's the outcome of it. You don't need to know that. You just need to know that He knows what He's doing. He knows how to preserve me through this. And He has not left me nor forsaken me. Your plans are still to prosper. You've not forgotten us. You're with us through the fire and the flood. You're faithful forever. You're perfect in love. You are sovereign over us. You believe that when you sing it? He knows how. You don't have to know how. You just have to trust that God can handle you and get you through it. He rescued Noah and his family from the flood that destroyed every other human being and every other animal on the planet except what was in the ark. And he rescued Lot and his daughters from the fire and sulfur that burned Sodom and Gomorrah down to the dirt. He knows how to empower you to endure. I'm going to read that again. God knows how to empower you to be able to endure whatever comes your way. 
He knows how to carry you through. Whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, what? Goodness gracious, this is too hard. That'd make a terrible song. (laughs) This is hard. (laughs) This blows chunks. This blows chunks. (laughs) Told you'd make a terrible song. (laughs) If you don't know what blows chunks means, ask your parents after the service. He knows how to carry you through. He knows how to rescue you. But that's not all. And He knows how to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. God is not just focused on helping His people. He's also focused on properly judging the unrighteous on that final day. Listen. Oh... God is playing a very long game. Andrew said before the service, and I told him this would probably make it into the message. A literary device for telling who a bad, evil person is, they want everything quick and they want it now. That's not God. If you'll bow down to me, I'll give you all the cities and all the nations of the world. And they'll bow down at your feet. Now, Jesus, the devil said. Well, Jesus is like, that's going to happen anyway. And I'm not in a hurry. I'm not evil like you. You know that your time is brief. So you're just trying to cause mayhem in the midst of it all. But God is playing a long game. Don't ever forget that. God does not get rattled when things seem out of control. Nor should we. Because here's the truth. Things are not out of His control. Kingdoms have come and gone. Evil men have risen and fallen. And God has always been on the throne. He is sovereign. Listen, listen. God is sovereign over the righteous and the unrighteous. And the plan He has for the unrighteous is to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. And God had this plan from eternity past. And that plan reaches into eternity future. God's covered all the bases. There is not a maverick molecule, R.C. Sproul says. Never has been, never will be. If there was ever a quark out of God's control, then He's not sovereign. But there has never been because He is sovereign. Listen, evil man is not sovereign. But God is. And He is sovereign over the righteous and the unrighteous. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle. And their destruction is not asleep. God, oh listen church, God has this whole thing in hand. If God slept, He doesn't, He wouldn't lose a minute's sleep over what's going on in the world. He's in full, firm, total control over it all. He will ensure that the wicked get judged and punished appropriately. Those persecuting God's people will get justice in the end. Trust in it. Rest on it. God knows, God is able, and God is faithful. To save the righteous and to punish the wicked. That's the point of today's passage. So we will turn to application. They're not alliterated today. They're very simple. So I didn't need to alliterate them. Wicked. Righteous. God. Now y'all can remember that, right? Probably better than an alliterated set, right? Wicked, righteous God. Notice that I didn't put righteous, wicked God because you can't say wicked God. It just doesn't work. It's like wicked down there. Wicked dot down there. All right. Wicked, righteous God. So as for application, wicked. The application is not be wicked. That's not the application. 
The application is to know that God is not unaware of the wicked. God is not shocked. God is not surprised at what wicked men and wicked forces are doing. And He, God, is keeping the wicked for judgment. They don't get away with it. It looks like they get away with it. All through the Psalms, David is saying, why do the wicked prosper? Why haven't you judged the wicked? Why, why, why? And we've all had those questions, right? That's why I love the fact that God includes the Psalms in the Bible. It's like every human emotion possible. And why, 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 why? And God says, I endorse this. And I want you to remember it. And I'm going to record it in the Holy Scripture so that you pray this stuff back to me too. Don't be afraid to approach God about the wicked. He knows. The wicked appear to flourish. But they are destined for destruction. Don't ever let that truth leave your head or your heart. Psalm 37. I'm going to read verse 10. And verses 14 and 15. In just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. That's verse 10. Now verses 14 and 15. The wicked draw the sword and bend their bows to bring down the poor and needy, to slay those whose way is upright. Their sword shall enter their own heart and their bows shall be broken. God knows how... Let there be light. God, whoa. God knows how to handle the wicked and the power and the electricity. Draw comfort from that. Don't look at the wicked and think that they're winning. They're not winning. Their destruction is sure, their judgment is not idle. God sees, God knows, and God is going to avenge His holiness upon them. And again, not just the people, but the forces behind the people as well. That's a really good application point. Not because I came up with it, because the Bible says it. God's not surprised, and God is is not inept in handling the wicked. They look like they're flourishing, but they're destined for destruction. So that's wicked. Righteous. Praise God from our passage today and all through the Scripture, you can be assured that the righteous will be delivered from their trials into glory. That is going to happen. No questions. So when you think, I don't know if I'm going to make it through this, you will. When the news is worse than you ever expected, God knew it before it was announced to you. And God knows how to preserve the righteous even in the midst of unrighteousness. The righteous appear to be destroyed. But they're destined for blessings beyond any imagination. The wicked seem to flourish but are destined for destruction. The righteous appear to be being destroyed but they're destined for blessings beyond any imagination. That's the way that God has designed this thing. Psalm 34, verses 19 to 22. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. Great is the Lord. That's good stuff right there. And we said last week, I think, see the last week or week before, Romans 12, 19, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. So our job is not to take vengeance because of what's happened to us. Leave that for God. He's going to do a better job of it than you ever could anyway. And then watch this. Mark 9, 42 to 48. Listen to the promises of those who are being persecuted in the midst of what's going to happen to those who are persecuting them. The words of Jesus, Mark 9, 42 to 48. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, 
It would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. I read that here because we've got a role as the righteous as well. We're not just waiting for deliverance. We also have to repent and forsake our sin along the way. We've got to cut off our hand, cut off our foot, pluck out our eye so that we're dealing with our sin and not just saying, well, my sin doesn't matter. Yeah, it does matter. Because it's affecting the flow of power in your life from God. God will preserve you. God will carry you through persecution and suffering. And our soul should be tormented by sin just like righteous lots was. And we've got to kill our sin. And God's able to help you do that as well. Wicked, righteous, last application point is God. God is overseeing all of this. All of God is sovereign. In the midst of evil, in the midst of righteousness, in the midst of good and bad, in the midst of struggles and hardships, God is sovereign over the righteous and over the wicked. God is overseeing all of this, every single bit of it, and is not oblivious to anything that is going on. David would say, how long will you stand far off, God? And again, God's not afraid of that prayer. God's not going to beat on you because you say that or get mad at you. He's not oblivious to anything. And he says to the righteous, come to me. I know how to carry you through this. I know how to empower you to walk through this. In the midst of it, I am here and I am sovereign. And he says to the wicked, your time is coming. And your judgment, even now, is not idle or asleep. God is overseeing all of it. Deuteronomy 7, 9. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love Him and keep His commandments to a thousand generations. And another passage says, and who by no means will clear the guilty. Romans 9, 22-24. What if God, desiring to show His wrath and to make known His power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of His glory for vessels of mercy, which He has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom He has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. Are you uncomfortable with the fact that God prepared some vessels for destruction? Because He did. Because He's sovereign. That's a little hard to take, right? Pray about it. Take it to God. God, I I, I wrestle with this. I struggle. How could you be good and prepare people for destruction in order to show His glory is what Romans 9 says. The glory of the gospel in which the wrath of God for the sins of man falls on Jesus, the sinless one, so that the sinful man deserving that wrath gets grace instead, shows the glory of God better than anything in all of the universe. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. The Gospel tells us that God has a way of escape from punishment for the wicked. And that way of escape is through the cross of Christ, through the blood of Christ, through the person and the work of Christ who became sin for us that we might become the very righteousness of God in Him. And as you're struggling, as you're suffering, remember God is able to deliver you through and out of your trial whatever it may be. God is able also to justly punish those who have or who are persecuting you. 
and leave room for his vengeance because that's his job, not yours. 2 Peter 2.9, again. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. He knows and he's able. Let's pray. Father, we have seen some hard truths today. And I wonder if we're uncomfortable with our view of what your wrath looks like. But by the power of your Holy Spirit, God, may we who know you and call you Father grow in our trust of you. Grow in our love for you in the midst of these truths of a God who pours out wrath upon the unrighteous and a God who delivers the righteous through and from all of their trials. There is nothing that wicked man or wicked forces can do that you can't overcome and bless your people through. If you didn't spare angels, if you didn't spare the world in Noah's time, if you didn't spare Sodom and Gomorrah in Lot's time, if you delivered Noah and his family and Lot and his daughters, then you will judge the wicked in our time and deliver us from evil as well. You are able to do that. And we trust that you will, God. Help us to walk in faith and not by sight. And if there be any that hear my voice now that remain under your wrath, may they flee from the wrath that is to come into the ark of safety, which is Jesus Christ. Putting their faith in him and his finished work so that your wrath will be averted and they get the deliverance that God gives to the righteous. May they confess their sins Confess their faith in the finished work of Christ for their salvation. May your Holy Spirit do that quickening work to enable them to do that. And we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand and receive a benediction? Now to Him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of His glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. You're dismissed. I guess you can stay in it if you want to. Whatever's going on.